So it's funny, Pete told me a while ago what verse I was going to be preaching on. Um, this verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so I started thinking about what this verse was really about and, and thinking, okay, it's about the presence of our enemies and meeting God in the midst of our pain and our suffering and the hardest times in life. And so I came up with this title, In the Midst of Our Pain. And I thought, hmm, it's pretty punchy, it's a good title. And then Pete organized this Zoom call about a week ago to, to do some preach prep to make sure we weren't saying anything, you know, too heretical. And um, we got on the Zoom call and I looked at the title of the Zoom call and it was Feasting. And I thought, okay. And then Pete starts talking about what the verse is about. And he's like, yeah, so this verse is, this verse is, no, I'm not going to do a Pete accent. Uh, this verse is all about feasting and joy and celebration and like good times. And I looked down at my title in the midst of our pain. I thought, ah, I think I might have gone down the wrong path here. Um, but you'll be pleased to hear I've totally ignored everything Pete said and um, stuck to the road of pain. So buckle up. Um, and with that in mind, as we've been doing each week, why don't we read the psalm together out loud? I don't know if it's coming up. Here it is. So, the Lord is my shepherd. I have nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He So just over a year ago, um, on the day that Putin invaded Ukraine, I found myself up in Lancaster shutting down the gift company that I'd set up a few years earlier. Um, and we were clearing out the office that we'd rented out up there. And it was a pretty depressing day. The business had failed after years of trying to grow it. And we were having to get rid of all this stock that didn't have any resale value. But there's this one moment that really sticks in my memory. Me and my friend Jordan, who was helping me, we were carrying these boxes downstairs to recycle them. And each box had about a 1,000 leaflets, leaflets in it with the company brand and company logo and, and some information. Uh, and so it's like, you know, it's useless to anyone. So we were having to recycle it. So we go outside, and it was a really grim day. It was like raining, and it was windy, and it was freezing cold. Um, and... The recycling bin is one of those massive ones. And so we're walking up to it, and Jordan's carrying this box, and he lifts it up to try and tip all the leaflets into the bin. And just before he tips it, his hand slips, the box falls, and a 1,000 leaflets get blown down the street in the rain. And I just stood there looking as these leaflets, a 1,000 of them, were just sat on the street, all with our company logo on it. And I just thought, well, firstly, we're going to have to pick all of those up. And secondly... It's a bit of a metaphor for where my life's at right now. And thank you, that was really nice. <laughs> so much empathy over here. Um, but really, it could have been a metaphor for the past four years of my life. Yeah, thanks. Um, because those four years were full of, honestly, 
brokenness and failure and loneliness and lack of direction and no real achievement in the world's eyes. It felt like I'd been battling for four years and was getting absolutely nowhere. But yet, in those past same four years, I went on this journey of stillness and contemplative prayer, which honestly, I experienced more joy and freedom and rest and abundance than I'd ever experienced before in the midst of all this pain and in the midst of this stuff going wrong. And it's this journey of stillness and rest that I think really captures the heart of what this verse is about and really the heart of the gospel. So it began when I was about 24 and things were going pretty well. I was working for this um, impact investment firm and I'd done some finance exams and I'd moved to Sierra Leone to set up a chicken restaurant. Some of you didn't see that coming. (laughs) Others of you saw it coming because you heard this story before and I'm sorry about that but it's my testimony and I've only got one. Um, So anyway, I had this idea for this chicken restaurant and the whole point of it was to create low-skilled job opportunities in Sierra Leone. Um, and so I was out there leading the project and I had to build a new building. So we, knocked, we found the site, knocked down the building, hired an architect, uh, found a contractor, was negotiating cement prices with the contractor um, and organized shipping containers from the UK to bring all the kitchen equipment over, um, hired about 20 staff to work in the kitchen, to work in the restaurant, sorry. And honestly, I was just figuring it out. I was just hustling. There was this one moment that we hired a... Um, American contractor from Chick-fil-A. Any Chick-fil-A fans? No? Okay. (laughs) Um, We'd hired this um, contractor from Chick-fil-A to come over and basically help us with customer service. And he walks in the kitchen, and this is a week out from our our launch, our opening, and he takes one look around the kitchen. He's like, dude, where are the floor drains? And I'm sorry to every American in the room, but I felt it needed accent. Dude, where are the floor drains? And I was like, what floor drains? And he's like, you don't have floor drains? And I was like, "Uh, no. And basically, when you take chicken out of the fryer and you put it on the side to package it, all the oil from the chicken drops onto the floor. And if it's got nowhere to go, it just builds up over time. And it's like, it's firstly gross and secondly, like a bit of a hazard. And so whilst, you know, the Chick-fil-A guy's having a mild panic attack in the corner, we come up with this plan to dig a channel down the side of each wall and then knock a hole through the wall so that every half an hour, one of our staff members can get a big squeegee and just squeegee all this chicken oil into the channel and out the wall. And it was just like one example of how chaotic it was and like what it was like out there. But the thing is, from the outside, things are going really well. And the, the kind of image I was projecting to the world was one of achievement, of leading, of making an impact and making a difference. And... The reality was, on the inside and internally, I was lonely and exhausted and anxious. I was working 18-hour days, totally on my own. I was the only one from the company out there. And before we launched the restaurant, I felt sick to my stomach with anxiety because I was worried we weren't going to have any customers. And then after we opened the restaurant, I was sick with anxiety because we had too many customers. And I think it's a bit of a reflection on our society. We're desperate to project this image of success to the external world. And yet internally, we're just suppressing all of our emotion and our anxiety that we're actually feeling. And honestly, I think I probably would have been okay if that was all I had to deal with. I would have sort of just got through it. But sometimes life 
sort of throws things at us which we can't handle and the battle becomes too much and like we can't fight back and I can't really share details of this but at the same time in the midst of that hecticness and loneliness um, something came up in my family which honestly um, just broke me and for the first time in my life where work had been chaotic and I was out in Sierra Leone and there was no real community. My family had kind of been a safe haven. It wasn't anymore and it felt like I was falling and I had nothing to hold on to. I remember just sitting um, on the floor and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And it was a kind of a pain, like, I don't know if anyone's experienced this, but like, it's like emotional, but you feel it physically, you know? told you this was going to be intense. <laughs> but it's where it gets good, because a friend had basically given me this book. It's called Into the Silent Land. And it's all about stillness and contemplation. And I'd started reading this book in this place of brokenness. And in it, he writes this. Every spiritual pilgrim is constantly being called home. As St. Augustine says, from the noise that is around us to the joys that are silent. Why do we rush about looking for God who is here at home with us if all we want is to be with him? The, this joy that is silent is already within us. Its discovery is precious beyond compare. Let us journey home then to the silence of our own fathoms by becoming still. And in the midst of this pain and this brokenness and this anguish, something in those words connected with my soul. And I started just sitting in stillness and sitting in silence and meeting with God in that place of stillness. And honestly, at the start, it was brutal. I would get up at 5 a.m. and I would sit for two hours in stillness and feel nothing. Or worse, I would sit there for two hours and I would start to feel worse because all of the anxiety and the pain that I was pushing down like, was front and center. There was no distraction. And so that's all I could feel. And I think, again, it's true of our society. We're told to keep busy or we, we do it to ourselves. We keep busy and we keep distracted and we push this stuff that's going on internally down. But as I went back day after day and sat in that place of stillness again and again and again, with time and gently, these words of Jesus became real for me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it was like in that place of stillness at God's table, he met with me and all of the brokenness that surfaced in that place of stillness, he took it and put it on himself. And all I was left with was this deep sense of peace and love and rest, like real rest. And so that's the first step of this verse, which I think mirrors this journey of stillness, of sitting at God's table and finding his rest. And the second step is about anointing an identity. And so it's funny. I went to Sierra Leone, um, and I think if I'm really honest with myself, I didn't go out there because 
I really wanted to start a chicken restaurant. It wasn't my life's ambition, shock. <laughs> um, but I went to Sierra Leone because I thought it was going to be impressive to other people. It was about the perception of others. I thought they would be impressive to my dad or to my boss or to the people around me. And I thought I would find a sense of identity and worth in my achievements and in the perception of others. And the place that it left me in was loneliness and brokenness. And again, I think in this world, we're told to strive. We're told if you achieve and if you are successful, that you will find identity, you will find purpose, and you'll find rest. And I'm telling you, that is a false promise. It will leave you in loneliness and brokenness. Instead, it was when I stopped and let go that I discovered my identity. Back to Martin. He says this. Out of this letting go, there emerges what St. Paul called our hidden self. May he give you the power through his spirit for your hidden self to grow strong. Ephesians 3.16. Again, contemplative practice does not produce this hidden self, but facilitates the falling away of all that obscures it. And in the same way that Samuel, the prophet Samuel, went to David, who wrote this psalm, and whilst he was still a shepherd, went to him and anointed his head with oil and said, this is who you really are. You are a king. In the same way, God met with me in that place of stillness. And it was like at his table, in the midst of pain and battle, whilst I was still in the battle, he anointed my head with oil and reminded me, this is who you really are. You are not your achievements. And you are not your brokenness. You are made and loved by me. And that's enough. And really, like, that is the gospel. And people have said, I've, you know, grown up a Christian, people have said, oh, the gospel is good news. And you hear it all the time. And I was like, yeah, I guess it's good news, you know. But at this point in my life, it was like something clicked in my heart. That, like, the gospel is such good news. The only thing I need to care about is intimacy with God. That is my identity, and that is my purpose. And really, this whole psalm is about intimacy. Every single line is about intimacy. And it ends in the house of the Lord. You know, we go on this journey, and we, and we start, like, as a shepherd, and then we go to this place of brokenness, the valley of the shadow of death, and then we end in the house of the Lord. But every line is about intimacy. And in the same way, the entire gospel is about intimacy, it starts in this place where we're made by God and there's intimacy with God. And then we fall, we fall away and end up in this, pain of bro- in this place of brokenness and distance from God. And then God sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could be reunited with God in that place of intimacy. The whole point is reunited with God in intimacy. And some of you may recognize that pattern, creation, decreation, recreation. <laughs> And yes, Pete paid me a fiver to put that in there. <laughs> but the thing is, it's so easy to forget that that is the simple gospel, and the, the, there's such freedom in that. In Galatians, it says it is for freedom that he set us free. Like, the point is intimacy. And that's what God reminded me of in that place of stillness. The only thing that matters, the reason we exist, is intimacy. There's nothing to prove or achieve And it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like I could let go of all of this striving and hustling and trying to prove myself and just like breathe. 
And with that, and with that came this freedom to be totally myself. And for the first time in my life, I was able to let go of trying to impress other people or trying to live by the perception of others. I was able to sit down in that place of stillness and ask myself, what is it that I feel called to? What do I have conviction for, regardless of the perception of others? I've got nothing to prove. I can live from conviction and not perception. And that is a simple truth, but that's the gospel, and it was like a total revelation for me in that moment. And so I quit my job and moved back to London. And it's interesting, at this point, my life starts moving in the opposite direction to what the world would say success is. Like, I'd quit my job, things were going quite well, moved back to London into my aunt and uncle's house because the rent was cheap. No sense of, like, direction or what was next. You know, if I was at a party, oh, what do you do? No, I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> like, it wasn't fun. Um, not much community, and still this real sense of family brokenness. And yet, in my soul, I felt this sense of homecoming, and I finally felt this sense of real rest and freedom and identity and joy. And in Philippians, it talks about how God gives us this peace that surpasses all understanding. And that was what it, was, it felt like for me. It was like it doesn't make sense. The trajectory, of my, the trajectory of my life is going in the wrong direction. But I was letting go of all the stuff that we're told is important that doesn't really matter. And I was finding depth and rest in God. Okay, still with me? <laughs> okay, good. So we've had sitting with God at the table and rest. We've had anointing and identity and realizing that our purpose is in intimacy with God. And now we've got the cup overflows and abundance. Because if it's true that purpose and intimacy, sorry, that intimacy is our purpose, that we have nothing to prove, it creates this space in our life to love others wholeheartedly and without agenda. And we've all been here, whether it's downstairs after church, or it's at the big chill, or it's at a party, and we're in a conversation, and the person we're talking to starts doing the meerkat, where they're like, they're like, yeah, no, yeah, oh. yeah, oh, no, that sounds great, and they're basically looking over your shoulder to find someone better to talk to, and I used to be terrible at this. My sister's here, and she could definitely attest to that. I used to be awful at this, and um, but what I realised is that when we have nothing to prove and we're formed in God, and we find our worth there in that place of intimacy, all of a sudden, when we live from rest and stillness, when we're with others, we're free to be restful and present. We're not worried about whether we're coming across as impressive and there's someone better we should be speaking to. And Henry Nouwen describes this as the movement from hostility to hospitality, where we let go of life as this competition or this zero-sum game where your loss is my gain. And instead, we're already made whole in that place of intimacy, got nothing to prove or to gain. Our cup is already overflowing. And so we can be present in every conversation. We can truly celebrate the success of others. And we can love wholeheartedly without agenda. And there's this moment at the end of John's Gospel where... Jesus and Peter are walking along the beach and 
It's after Jesus has died and risen again, but before he goes to heaven. And they're walking along, and Jesus turns to Peter and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And it's this moment of reconciliation for Peter. It's this moment of being made whole, this moment of freedom, because he denied Christ three times. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. And there's even this moment that Peter looks back and he points at John and he says, what about him? What's happening to John? And Peter says, and Jesus says to him, don't concern yourself with that. You follow me. And Peter had been through this brokenness of denying Christ and losing Christ. And then he'd experienced this freedom of being reunited with Christ in this reconciliation moment with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, go and care for those around you out of that place of abundance. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it's from rest and stillness and intimacy with God where our cup overflows that we're able to love wholeheartedly and without agenda. So that's the verse and that's the, the journey of stillness prepares a table and rest, anointing and identity, a cup overflows in abundance. And look, I wish I could say that my life since going on this journey has been this constant bundle of joy and perennial positivity. But the reality is, like, it hasn't. Life's been really hard. And there are times, like, I still feel deep loneliness. London's a funny city. You can be having friend, like, dinner with friends the night before and then walking down the street the next morning, see a group of friends having brunch and feel this pang of loneliness in your heart. I still feel insecure at times. There's times I come into even KXC and I feel like, oh, who am I going to talk to? There's an anxiety there. And there's still brokenness in my life. But the thing is, stillness and intimacy, it's like a magnet. And I stray and I chase after things of this world, or I feel lonely, or I feel insecure. And when I sit in stillness, it's like a magnet. It brings me back to the center and reminds me of what really matters. The Jesuits call this centering prayer. And if there's one thing I urge you to do in the coming weeks, it's to carve out some time in your day, whether it's 10 minutes or 20 minutes or longer if you can, and just sit in this centering prayer. And I like to imagine myself sitting with the Father, whether it's in a park or on the beach or somewhere physical, and I just sit with him. And just be still and let go and let all these stuff that you push down, let it up and give it to God. Because it's in that place that God reminds you of who you are and you experience deep rest. And if you're like interested in finding out more about sort of journeying in stillness, at the end there'll be a QR code and you can scan that and I've like made a, a Notion page with some recommendations. It's pretty high tech. <laughs> but look, these mountaintop moments are great. Like when we're in worship or we're in revival or when we get saved, they're brilliant. But the thing is, it's just the beginning. And it's just the start. The encounter is just the beginning. There's such joy after that point in the gentle day-by-day walk with God. And honestly, I've experienced the rest and freedom and abundance of God more deeply on my own in the slow letting go stillness of God 
than I have anywhere else. So let me finish on this. We can't avoid pain or battle in our lives. Like, we know it's going to come. That's the reality. But I've come to look at these moments of brokenness in my life, these moments of sobbing on the floor in total brokenness as sacred. There's another place in Scripture where the father prepares a table, and that's the story of the prodigal son. And the younger son has taken his inheritance, and he's chased after things of the world. And he loses it all. He ends up in this pigsty, having lost everything. But it's in the pigsty, there's this moment of clarity where all these things that he was told have value have fallen away, that he remembers the father. And it's the clarity of the pigsty that leads him back to the father. And in the same way, the pain and brokenness I've been through, I honestly wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I also wouldn't change it for the world because it led me to the father and to what really matters. In my experience, God doesn't airlift us out of pain. He sits with us in the midst of it. Because when we choose to sit with him in that pain and in that weakness, he forms it into beauty and strength. And without the clarity of the pigsty and sitting with God in our pain, the danger is that we become like the other brother, the elder brother, who lived his whole life striving after some future thing, working in the field, doing the right thing, like working away for this future inheritance. And there's this moment that the father comes to him in the field and says, my son, there's a table. Like, why aren't you with us at the table? And the elder son complains and complains and complains. And the father looks at him and says, but my son, you have been with me this whole time. And as I was praying, I imagined that at this moment, the elder son falls on his knees and just starts sobbing in the realization that he'd lived his whole life and he'd missed the whole point. That he could have spent every day with the father because that's what really matters. Like, forget the crop and forget the inheritance. The point was intimacy with the father. So let's not get to the end of our lives and fall on our knees before the Father, realizing we missed the whole point. So why don't we stand? If you just close your eyes. And I don't know, you know, where you're at in life at the moment or what's going on. You might be the younger son in the midst of pain and feel surrounded in the midst of that brokenness. Or you might be the elder son focused on rushing through life, going from one thing to the next to the next. But the invitation here is the same. He prepares a table. Will you sit with him? Mm -hmm.